Justin Rowe Roberts covers the Johannesburg Stock Exchange for BizNews throughout the day. Justin, take us through the main developments on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange. The JSE All Share Index was slightly down on the day to 68,000. Some of the day's highlights include NASPERS down more than 100 Rand to 3,640, on the back of Tencent being sold off sharply in Hong Kong this morning. Sassel rose over 6 Rand on the day to a shade below 200, on the back of a higher Brent crude price. First Rand was strongly up to over 53 Rand, and that was on the back of a better-than-expected interim results update this morning. Lastly, food retailer ShopRite was also strongly up on the day, up more than 5 Rand to 136 Rand per share. In the currency markets, the Rand weakened against all the major currencies on the day, to 15 Rand 10 against the greenback, 21 Rand against the sterling, and 18 Rand 15 against the euro. Gold sold, sold off to $1,710 an ounce. Bitcoin weakened by 15,000 Rand a Bitcoin to 740,000 Rand. And Brent crude increased strongly on the day to over $65 a barrel. Next, Charles Boerter covers the Stock Exchange News Service for BizNews. Charles, tell us about the transaction capital announcement. Charles? I think Charles... Uh, Jackie, uh, sorry about that. Um, Transaction Capital CEO came out with a statement ahead of their AGM. And uh, for those who don't know, Transaction Capital is uh, market darling, small small cap, medium cap uh, market darling. They operate uh, a business called SA Taxi. And they recently bought uh, We Buy Cars, which I think a lot of people are familiar with. So what does SA Taxi do? Well, essentially everything to do with taxis except drive it. And I think management uh, uh, won't get into that anytime soon. Um, So they sell taxis on credit uh, to taxi operators. These are the taxi bosses, if you will. They sell insurance on these taxis. They refurbish them. They repair them. They paint them. They work out the best routes for them. And, uh, yeah, so the CEO indicated that at level five, uh, COVID lockdown, the capacity in these taxis were at 65%. Uh, level four, it's uh, reached 90%. And from level three onwards, the taxis were full, um, according to their systems. So things are going well there. And from the WeBuy cost perspective, um, yeah, new car sales were down 14% from 34,000 vehicles uh, last year, um, yeah, 234,000 vehicles uh, this year, excuse me, and this bodes well because we buy cars, as we know, do, does used cars, so if people are trading down, the used car market will be buoyant, so this should be positive for the company, which the CEO also indicates in his statement. Charles, before we move on, that's quite an interesting stat you picked up on. Taxis were only supposed to be 70% full in lockdown level three. So that suggests yeah. that uh, all this news is good for transaction capital, but maybe not such good news for the spread of COVID-19. Um, Jackie, uh, one could say, they say in their report that uh, their systems cannot see how many people are in the vehicle. Uh, they can only see... You know, this is their vehicle driving, and this is how long it drove, and this is how far it drove. So from their perspective, they, they won't be able to say that a taxi had 22 people, and that's, that's you know, the max. But uh, from anecdotal evidence uh, myself, I think most of the taxis are, are full. Justin. 
Transaction capital has been one of the best performing shares of the JSC over the last 10 years. That is amongst uh, players such as Clicks that have almost increased tenfold. That's a very interesting stat, Justin. So you've been listening to Charles Boerter, who covers the Stock Exchange News Service for Biz News from the Western Cape, and Justin. It's a warm welcome to James Herbst, CEO of the Johannesburg-listed Huge Group. He's with us in our Johannesburg studio, standing next to my colleague Justin Rowe Roberts. James, before we get into the details of the Huge Group's attempt to take over Pan-African tech group Adapt IT, perhaps you can just start with a quick overview of what the Huge Group does and why it wants to take over a competitor. Thank you, Jackie. Thanks, Justin, for inviting me. Um, it's nice to have a platform to come and tell people about a Huge Group. Um, I don't think Huge Group is as well known as we would like it. So, uh, you know, these kind of platforms, um, you know, are, are certainly welcomed by us. Huge Group uh, operates in a number of areas and has a vision of operating in in a further number of areas over time. And, and those four particular pockets of, of are you of, an IT company? Well, well, that. Let me let me disclose the pockets of interest that we have, and then that might better define um, where we're going. We're not an IT company. Um, the the pockets in which we like to play, are playing, and want to play, is uh, firstly in the connectivity space. We think a, a world without connectivity is uh, is meaningless. Um, and, and if you take the second pocket in which we're interested in, which is uh, the cloud. Um, again, cloud and connectivity um, are important links. And then when you start getting into the usefulness of cloud, that's where, you, that's where you get to software and the importance of software in that whole ecosystem. And then we take it one, one step further in terms of our, our interest, and we think the world is starting to converge, and we hear all those buzzwords, uh, fintech, edutech, health tech. So the, the other pocket in which we want to play is, is something that we define as X-Tech, anything where there is a convergence of, of some form of application um, with technology. And that is our focus um, as huge group. And when you start unpacking the companies in which um, we're interested in, you start realizing um, that they, they squarely fit into those pockets and that Adapt IT as uh, a company in which we are interested, um, also fits into those pockets. What we see over the longer term, over, over the next five to ten years, is a natural integration of those pockets and a coming together of them. And that is the rationale for our our interest in Adapt IT. So Justin was really excited when you agreed to come to the studio because you're right in the middle of a hostile takeover. This sounds a bit like the stuff that goes on in Wall Street movies. Can you tell us a little bit about that hostile takeover? How did it start? How did you decide Adapt IT was your target? Yeah, I, I think I think it's important to take one step back and, and probably look at the word hostile and uh, and and how it's defined in this particular context. So uh, while, it, while it certainly might meet the definition, because the definition says that any bid um, that circumvents a board and goes directly to shareholders meets the definition of hostile, doesn't mean to say that at a very practical level it is hostile. So I can tell you that 
in um, in 2020, a huge group had conversations with representatives of Adapt IT, and those conversations were very constructive conversations, and were certainly not hostile um, by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, recently, because uh, you know the, of the Companies Act regulations, we've uh, started engaging with Adapt IT's independent board. And uh, certainly our view and our takeaway from those discussions is that we were very well received by the independent board who uh, have a role to play um, in, an, in an unbiased kind of fashion uh, um, to decide whether our approach um, is, is, is for the best of uh, the Adapt IT shareholder. So, you know, on, on that basis, um, you know, it's probably unfair to call it hostile. Um, is it unsolicited in terms of uh, the very first communication? No, because we had conversations before the offer letter went out. Was the offer letter expected? No, it wasn't. Uh, and if, if that pushes it into to hostile, then you know, maybe it meets the definition. James, where are the synergies between the huge group and Adapt IT? Why, why the need for this transaction? Where do you see the value being unlocked? <laughs> I think it's fair to say that if one looks at the South African investment environment, and particularly small cap companies, and I think one would argue if you look at huge huge groups market cap, uh, which at the time of the bid was was about one billion, and you look at Adapt IT's market cap at the time of the bid, which is probably about five hundred million. I mean, those are micro caps, and certainly the the the, the micro cap small caps, and we'd argue even up to ten billion rand of market cap have lost favor with the major institutions. And so our view as a board, um, the board of huge group, is that investment scale in the South African context is important. And so one needs to look for opportunities, and not just huge group, Adapt IT, or any other micro small cap out there, needs to look for opportunities to scale. And, and when we say scale, investment scale. Now, if you're gonna investment scale, you've, you've, gotta, you've gotta understand that there is fit and alignment. Um, you can't put a coal company together necessarily with a sheep farming company. Um, so, so there's got to be alignment. There's got to be fit. These businesses must need to work together so that the investment scale has some purpose. And we could tick all those boxes. So, James, I was reading your CEO's report, really a, a nicely written report that was quite accessible, and you spoke in quite a heartfelt way about the COVID-19 pandemic, and you at one stage were wondering last year whether this was an existential threat, and you were thinking about whether you needed to change your strategy from one of growth to survival. Is this where the hostile, or maybe not hostile, you don't like calling it hostile, is this where the takeover for Adapt IT fits in? Is this a survival strategy? No, not at all. I mean, when, when COVID hit all of us, um, I, I, th- I think, I mean, if you look at that sharp fall off um, in, in, global, in global markets, it, it was a case of questioning whether, um, you know, it, it was survival mode. And at the time that COVID hit was the time we put out our, our integrated report at, uh, at the end of our financial year. And you, you, you certainly have to ask that question. And we, we asked it of ourselves. Um, having lived through COVID and, and li- lived through the lockdown and, and, you know, more severe lockdowns into more or less, li- less severe lockdowns, um, we've come out of it very well. And our decision in early January um, to make an approach to adapt IT shareholders um, was not based on, uh, at that point in time, on survival because 
we we had not only as a as a group and our operating companies survived um, uh, the lockdowns, but we'd actually done work quite well out of it. And just when you you know just take us behind the scenes a bit. How much inspecting can you do of a company when you are in a takeover like this from a distance? Do they open the doors to you? Do you have cups of tea with them or beers on a Saturday? How have you been been engaging with the Adapt IT people? So, so as a listed company, and given given the approach that we followed, um, you know, according to the according to the definition of approaching shareholders directly rather than going to the board, our other alternative way of of, of trying to engage would have been typically on a, on a scheme of arrangement. So, a friendly sit down beforehand and trying to work out whether a deal could be done. Um, so it is limited when you are two listed companies. There, there's certain things you can and can't say, uh, and there, there's certain protocols you've got to follow. And, um, you know, one, one typically has to rely, given in our case the approach that we followed, we have to rely on public information. Having said that, a lot of Adapt IT's underlying companies are, are very well known to me personally and to colleagues with whom I work at Huge Group. And, uh, you know, we've, we've had an interest in the underlying Adapt IT companies for a very, very long time. I, I can remember having discussions uh, with Craig Young of Unison in 2004, 2005. I, I used to be employed by a company called DataPro once upon a time, and, and we looked at Unison and were interested in it. So that's one example. I mean, uh, I, I've had lots of conversations and commercial dealings with Andrew Harris of um, Aspivia, which is another Adapt IT company. So we do have a, a very good idea of, of uh, those, those Adapt IT companies and how they operate and where they fit in the market. So why did you need a bit more time? Uh, I, I saw earlier that the takeover regulation panel has given you a bit of extra time to finalise things. What happened that you, you needed a bit of an extension? We, we, we live as a huge group in the listed company space and we have the, uh, the fortune of having two uh, regulators. So uh, you know, there's the takeover regulation panel and then there's the JSC. And uh, the JSC has, as regulator in the last couple of years, has got more involved in these kind of situations, and in order to afford them enough time um, to peruse a, a TRP circular, uh, we, we needed to get an extension, i.e. to accommodate their time frames of processing. So we hear a lot of complaints about the JSE and the red tape. Do you feel like tearing your hair out? at times with all the regulation? No, not at all. I mean, the, the JSC has got a job to do in our, in our opinion, and it is there as, as a body, and certainly in my own personal opinion, to protect the interests of small minority shareholders. Um, and, and we think they do that very well, and we, we think that the, the processes that they have adopted over time are, are appropriate for, for, for South Africa. So... Uh, re- regulation is frustrating, but it's 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 needed. So before we move on to our next guest, I wanted to ask you, you know, takeovers can also be quite dirty. Is it possible for the adapt IT people to push their share upwards uh, to, to put themselves out of reach? What's been happening with their share? And uh, is there anything that will happen, you think, to get in your way? So, so the shareholders of Adapt IT are free to to uh, deal with their shares and and acquire more shares in the market at their pleasure. I mean, the, the, they 
that they're entitled to do exactly what they would like to do. As regards Adapt IT and its board, um, you know, Adapt IT's board and the company is governed by the takeover regulation panels, and so the company may not um, embark on any frustrating actions. So, as an example, Adapt IT as a company cannot repurchase its own shares uh, during an offer period. That was James Herbst, CEO of the Huge Group, and he's been talking to us about a takeover of Adapt IT, which is not yet completed. We'll be picking up with James again later on in the program. Coming up is Andrew Rissick, a director at Sable International. Did you invest in a car that's safe and reliable? How do you maintain it after your motor plan has run out? The answer is AutoWorks. At AutoWorks, you get original parts with a 60,000-kilometer one-year warranty and workmanship as good as the agents. With branches in Strand, Milneton, Salt River, and now also Brackenfell, keep your car maintained according to the original manufacturer's specifications. Visit autoworks.co.za for more. AutoWorks. We make autos work. Now you can enhance the beauty of your garden by using Mayford Seeds with a full range of vegetables, flowers, herbs and lawn grasses. Mayford Seed Packs are hermetically sealed and date stamped, ensuring a quality product that you can trust. To grow your own vegetables, herbs, flowers and lawn, explore our seed stand at any leading retailer for sheer inspiration. Mayford Quality Seeds, the leading brand. Okay, good evening, uh, Jackie. I'm on. Um, hope you can hear me loud and here. Nice adverts there in the background. How's it, Andy? Sorry, I think we've just lost Jackie for a sec. She will be back, okay. but let's kick off the conversation. Um, so, so, Andy, you're a, you're a Forex specialist. Tell us what drives the RAND. We, we're all very interested. We have got no idea. The, the currency markets are so volatile out there. One day the RAND's up. 50 cents against the greenback and the next day it's down a rand. How does it all work? Yeah, uh, Justin, that's a great question and um, I could sit and chat to you for hours about that. But I think um, just to try and simplify things, um, you know, we're talking about uh, a currency that's uh, affected by many fundamentals. Uh, we're an emerging market um, as a country. So when emerging markets are on the move, either um, increasing or decreasing depending on global risk appetite, uh, the RAND gets affected by that. And that is um, very much a sort of a sentiment-driven type of volatility that we see coming into, into how that then affects the value of the RAND. And a very interesting factor to understand about the RAND in terms of its emerging market status is that when emerging markets are on the up, the RAND tends to be one of the best performers out of a large basket of emerging market currencies and equally when everybody's selling emerging market um, assets and, and the currencies are under pressure, you'll often find that the RAND is one of the worst performing and the reason being that it's a very liquid and, and highly traded uh, currency. So when we're on the up, we really do go well and when we're on the down, we go down properly. So that, that's one of the big drivers of sort of short-term volatility. Um, Another, another factor one needs to take into account is um, our economy is very much commodity driven um, in terms of exports and we are a big sort of import economy in terms of our consumption items. So 
you know, at the moment, China seems to be sort of uh, growing again and starting to get going post-pandemic. And there seems to be a little bit more demand for commodities globally. I think sentiment's picking up again. And that's quite grand positive because, you know, once the mines start producing and exporting, obviously that's really good for the currency. So two really important points to, to bear in mind. So, Andrew, a lot of analysts are talking about a potential commodity super cycle. Commodities are notoriously hard to predict. But if one has to occur and commodity prices keep increasing across the board, could we, could we see the rand near 10 rand to the greenback? Is that, is that a possibility? Um, wow. Last time we saw those levels was, was quite a long time ago. Uh, we're sitting at 15 at the moment. I know the rand is very undervalued. Um, it, it got quite strong towards the end of last year. It always is around about Christmas and everyone running their, um, running their allowances out. But, um, 10 to a dollar, I think might be a little bit, um, I think a little bit positive. You may see sort of 13, maybe at best 12, but I think 10's a stretch far. Bearing in mind we were downgraded um, and, and with all agencies now sub-investment grade for almost a year now. And then in November we had those sort of unexpected further downgrades. So I think that that's kind of structurally put the rand on a bit of a back foot, um, you know, just in terms of risk profile and cost of borrowings. For sure. And uh, with inflation expectations increasing in the U.S., the Fed doesn't have too much too much movement to to lower rates further. I mean, they're already at all time all time lows, and if they did have to increase the the lending rate, then that would obviously adversely affect the rand. Yeah, I think. Well, I mean, it's it, it would do because at the end of the day, I mean, the rand we're seeing lowest interest rates um, that we've ever really seen, and I think um, you know normally our government would look at increasing interest rates to try and bolster the RAND, that's something they can't really do at the moment. I think just because uh, consumers are really battling, you know, we, we, we've really been hard hit economically and households are battling because of the COVID pandemic. Um, but yeah, if, if interest rates in the US rise for sure, it will be RAND negative because it just decreases the yield differential between, you know, a sort of a hard currency and our, our emerging market currency. Andrew, for listeners who are new to investing offshore, please explain how currency decisions can impact on overall returns. How do we factor these variables into our investment decision making? Well, look, I mean, when you, I, I think, um, you know, if you, if you just take a starting point, uh, making a good investment is about buying right. And um, so, you know, if you're making an investment in your local currency, um, let's say you're buying a property or any asset, if you buy it well, ultimately when you sell it, you'll hopefully get a good return. Um, equally, if you're investing offshore, the same principle applies. Um, it just adds in one more factor of uncertainty, and that's um, obviously the currency. Um, I think if you look at it historically, South Africans who take a long-term view investing offshore have probably been really happy with their returns because the RAND has generally just been taking a long, long-term devaluation against lots of harder currencies. So um, in the long term, I think going offshore is probably – a great strategy if you haven't, but you can make some really short-term mistakes. Um, if you remember back in 2015 when we had the, the crisis of, um, of all the finance ministers and the RAND hit 24 to a pound briefly, um, everybody panicked 
Um, tons of people were running cash out of 24 to a pound. I think it was close on 22 US dollar. Um, we've got quite close to that uh, briefly last year again. But if you look at where we're sitting today, 21 to a pound, 18 to a euro, and 15 to a dollar, um, those people who took their money out of 24 are still underwater, unless they've had great returns in, in the hard currency. Thing. Yeah. Sorry, Andrew, it looks like we've lost Jackie again. Um, so the RAND is not actually a one-way bet. No, it, well, I think long term it's, 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 it is kind of a one-way bet. But in the short term, one must be really careful. And, and I would advise people who are considering a, a, an offshore investment strategy to speak to a currency specialist to understand how to hedge because one can take out a hedging strategy as an individual where you can actually forward buy a currency um, up to a year um, when, the, when the rates are good. That's a good strategy. Um, or just take a blended approach and move money offshore regularly to try and average out um, the cost of your currency before you invest. James, what kind of currency strategies do you have at the huge group? We're South African based, so we, we don't have the a foreign exchange um, exposure. So, um, But you're going to have one if you buy the ADAPT-IT group, yes, aren't it, you? Because that's it, a pan-African group. Absolutely, and it's, uh, 30% of its revenues are, are offshore. And, you know, based on our investment style and, and the operating companies that we have, we leave them to manage their companies um, as they deem fit, and we add value in different ways. So we think ADAPT-IT and its management team are more than capable of dealing with their, their own uh, foreign ex- exchange exposures, even if we were to become a significant shareholder in that company. Andy, before we close off here, what currency should we be investing in offshore? This is a question that's often asked by business community members. Should we invest via the dollar or the pound or the euro? What's your broad brushstroke idea on what people should be doing? Well, I think um, I think you need to you need to look um, at at uh, various currencies and look at what they're doing uh, relative to each other, relative to the rand. Um, at the moment, if you look at the pound, for instance, it's actually quite strong um, against the euro and against the dollar. So probably now is not a great time to be buying pounds. Um, I think that relative to to the rand, that the the dollar's actually been on a bit of a back foot recently. Um, the Swiss franc's really expensive, but it's always a good bet. Um, but, uh, you know, a great currency. Um, the euro is also definitely a consideration at the moment. That was Andrew Rissick, a director at Sable International. We're going to be hearing from Jacques. Celia shortly. He's the CEO of FNB. But before we do, a quick snapshot from Charles on the FNB first round results. Jackie, um, first round came out with interim results today. And um, yeah, the, the first round, one must remember that the first round, it's a group. It's not just a bank, not just FNB. It's, uh, it consists of RMB. Uh, West Bank, uh, yeah, obviously, um, First Rand and, and uh, yeah, F&B and then uh, um, a UK uh, subsidiary as well. So one is just, but the bank is the major part of that business. So what tell we us about saw, the dividends. Yeah, so 
Just a little bit of background. Um, in April 2020, uh, the South African Reserve Bank uh, Prudential Authority instructed banks, all the major banks, that they weren't allowed to pay dividends to shareholders or cash bonuses to executive management. The reason for this is that in the reason for this is that credit, um, the things banks provide, is the lifeblood of an economy, but the banks don't lend this credit out. Um, you know, for the good of society per se. They do it to make money, and if they don't do it for that, they do it to stay in business at least. But the problem is, if you have something like COVID happening and the lockdown happening, where people lose their jobs, small businesses can't operate, they can't pay people, those people need loans. But those people don't have the money to pay loans, so it's like a catch-22, the banks don't want to lend. So what the Reserve Bank then did, they said, Listen, we're essentially going to give you 500 billion rand. Uh, they didn't give them that in money. They gave them that by relaxing some of the um, rules and regulations they have on our local banks. So that is what happened last year. Then about two, three weeks ago on the 18th of February, the same uh, Prudential Authority, Reserve Bank Prudential Authority, came out and said the banks can now resume paying dividends or maybe, and or cash bonuses uh, in a prudent manner. So that's what we saw. We saw uh, FMB coming out, or first round coming out of those, those results, and they're paying out one rand thirty per share. And they also mentioned the results that, um, taking into account what's, what's coming up, they have decided to pay this dividend, and they've decided to, um, to do it on a 2.2 uh, cover, dividend cover, their range is usually 1.8 to 2.2. 2.2 is uh, more conservative. So, so they're paying less of the earnings out to shareholders, but they're paying out. So that was Charles Boerter in the Western Cape. He is a business financial journalist. We'll be picking up with Charles again later on in the show. Here is Jacques Sillier, CEO of FNB, who is with us on the line now to pick up on the bank's performance after it released results. And as we heard from my colleague Charles Boerter at the start, the normalized profits were down, but the return on equity is 30% up. But lots of bright spots, Jacques Siliers. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Um, the, uh, yeah, if, it took us, if, if you had to uh, think 12 months ago, uh, steering a pandemic, uh, you know, in, in, in the crosshairs, it was, a, it was a very, very different year. Uh, we've, we've navigated at the end of the the period able to produce some results. I think uh, we are very chuffed with uh, banking a 20% drop in, in earnings, but uh, 30% ROE and a very stable business, been able to help our clients through a very difficult time, continue to do so. And uh, and operationally, um, yes, given our technology platforms and digital executions, really, really comforting to see that even our customer base have grown. I, mean, our commercial I see that your deposits were up by about 20%. Is this a sign that South African consumers have been saving more? Or is this a relatively small group of people with more to save? No, no, no. no. At, at, at scale, I mean, obviously from a, from a savings perspective uh, across our client base, we, we, saw, we saw a big uh, flow of money into, into the liability uh, part of our business. Uh, this was not a year we where lots of people went out and, and start businesses and buy and merge and expand. So many people uh, were able to, uh, to, to sit a little bit on, on, their, on their savings and on, on, on their cash flow. So 
uh, non, very few people went overseas, even in the personal capacity, traveling, uh, entertainment, uh, you know, lots of savings came to, and also the, the, the interest rate, uh, um, sort of savings uh, reductions helped, helped people with their cash flow. So I think many of, of our clients were, were in a position to save a bit more in the year. And that puts them into a very good position as the economy starts opening up to, to, to use some of that savings and, and to go and expand and build businesses. So, uh, I, I think by and large, a reflection of the, of the health of our client set, not necessarily of a broader economy. But certainly from our perspective, we are blessed to have a, an amazing, resilient client base. Jacques, APSA and Standard Bank came up with trading updates a few weeks ago, and they were rather grim. How did you guys manage to buck the trend? Look, I mean, I can't comment on their results. So I, I, can, I can say that what we uh, set out to do uh, last year, we, we had a very deliberate strategy about uh, looking after our existing customers and not going out on acquisition drives with uh, with a balance sheet uh, drive. So we focused all of our attention and our resources on our existing client base to get them through the cycle. Uh, we also made sure that we we provided very well right up front as opposed to thinking that we would uh, sort of navigate ourselves through this thing. So so most of, of our upfront provisions were, were you know, sort of we, we're grateful that at least it looks as though that is those assumptions we made um, we're on the better side of the highway we, we set ourselves out at. And, uh, and, uh, and, you know, so through the period, being able to uh, be capital and, uh, and have a creative. So, so I think, you know, from a, from a balance sheet perspective, the fact that we've got some firepower now to support the growth of our clients as the economy opens up is a, is a very good space to be in. Jacques, in your notes with your results, you mentioned that FNB Agriculture has supported at least 125 farmers with an equivalent of about 700 million rand. Now, earlier in the year, President Saul Ramaphosa promised the ANC that the party will push hard to get land expropriation without compensation laws through Parliament as a priority. How is FNB taking looming land expropriation without compensation into account in its planning? Have you, have you factored this in at all? How, what kind of challenge do you face here? Yeah, I mean, it would be nice if we could have some certainty about policies. You know, policies in itself is not the problem. The problem is if there's no certainty in policy. So, but at the moment, we're not positioning ourselves for, for, uh, for, for unnecessary uh, disruptions and risk. It obviously does have an impact on, 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 on valuations because the market needs certainty before they really expand. But actually, actually, the theme that you're referring to is actually uh, we are very proud of our client set in the agri space, really looking out for transformational opportunities. And then clearly we can support those. You know, so we have so many examples of uh, of farmers doing amazing work to try and transform their industries and their and their areas and facilitating so much skills transfer into into uh, uh, you know sort of new entrant farmers and, and clearly those are spaces where we either use our own resources or we even have uh, you know some of the uh, uh, grant funding and, and FDI funding that comes uh, you know from a global uh, perspective available for these themes they they really are supportive I mean agriculture actually is a theme for our country at the moment it's amazing how much opportunity there is it's a it's a it's a sweet spot industry and uh, and we're delighted to play a big part in that. We hear from analysts oh, that uh, a lot of um, a big concern is that banks are going to be very badly affected by uh, land grabs because of all the mortgages that will not be paid when people lose their property rights. And that includes farmers because the proposal by the ANC is to take the land and put it into state hands. So 
Uh, have you had any conversations about that in the bank? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a very uh, well-documented uh, industry-wide uh, conversation, and we clearly are, are monitoring. You know, we've made our comments. We are part of the of, of, of all the dialogue with, uh, with, with the authorities. And I think there's a, you know, in the end, uh, we've got a lot of comfort that, uh, that the right things will, will happen and we will facilitate and play our part to, to, to support, you know, that outcome. I think it's uh, back to the topic of, of what is it we're looking for is just certainty in policy um, and that we can all then uh, move on. But I, I, I think we, we don't see this as a major impact on, 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 on that uh, ultimate uh, driver of, of how we do banking in, in in the agricultural world of property rights. I think there's just there would be elements of environments where, where there's an adjustment needed, and we can facilitate those. I think you know uh, we've been in banking 180 years. Uh, rules change, policies change, uh, and you know what we found over the years is that there's just an adjustment or two. No different now when the credit regulation came into play in uh, you know 2008. We obviously had to adjust adjust lots of our origination policies and, and credit uh, processes and you know we'll 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 do we'll adjust accordingly so you know we we so that's that's the next step would, would you mind if the people stop paying their mortgages or will you still come after them if they don't pay their mortgages yeah yeah and yeah so our our uh, our, our there's a legal construct uh, obviously our, our our mortgages are not linked necessarily to to that uh you know, sort of walk away from your debt perspective so so we're not. Uh, so at the moment, there's a there's a nice legal construct under the constitution, and, and we and we respect that. Okay. So just for clarity, the banks haven't really factored in land expropriation into financial plans and forecasts for the businesses. No, we don't see that as a major deterrent in in how we lend. Our criteria is quite you know quite uh, stringent and focused on on, exp- on leveraging the the actual asset, but. Very importantly, when we originate um, credit, we do so into cash flow activities. It's the same with your mortgage. We wouldn't want to come and take your, your house from you. We, we, we lend and extend credit to people that can afford the credit. So although we have a security of an asset, um, ultimately that's not the basis of our origination strategy. We look at cash flows. We look at viability of businesses. We look at the viability of the farming activity. Um, and those things determine our origination uh, and, and credit uh, strategies. Not, not that we're not out there to to try and create too much of a focus on the valuation of the property itself. Although they have big impacts in how we determine, obviously, uh, the lending criteria. Jack, we're just moving on to the announcement about dividends and then cash bonus for Sorry, Jacques. I think we've lost our anchor, Jackie Cameron. There. <laughs> okay. Okay, I was hoping it wasn't me. <laughs> no, 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 no stress, Jacques. Jacques, um, just one point from my side. I see you guys, or, or the first RAND group, I'm not too sure um, how much say you, you have in it within an executive decision, uh, announced a, a $0.110 cent interim dividend. This obviously means that you guys are confident that cash flows are going to going to get back to 2019 levels um, sooner rather than later, and that was announced in your results. What, what is the what are the forecasts for the next few years in terms of the general uptick in the South African economy? Yeah, I mean, I think our, our big our big uh, dependency on our local economy is how fast we can get the vaccines into play. Um, you know, we've been able to navigate a very very hard lockdown. The second, 
third ones, uh, we've learned from those first one, uh, the big one, and then hopefully, uh, you know, we'll, they'll be they'll be less impactful and and that we can uh, so be more more uh, I think smarter at how we lock down, where we lock down, how we open up, because every day you you keep uh, an industry closed or a business closed, those are those are major impacts. So I think we're getting better and better at it. But ultimately, we need uh, we need comfort that the medicine the, the medicines of the world must come come in play. Um, we don't see that happen this year. I mean, although there would be some momentum, even we think that even it'll take probably into the middle of next year. Uh, and then I do think that as soon as as the market really starts uh, getting comfort that they, we can get out there again. I mean, Alan this morning said, you know, in his speech that uh, we can hear a bit of music playing, but it's not really a party yet. And, and at some stage, there's going to be some enthusiasm and people will get out. And I definitely have my name on some rock concert somewhere in the world that I want to get out to. Uh, but as soon as we get some real energy and uh, an economy out there, I mean, the asset prices, uh, I think, given the given the low interest rates and a bit of constraint in the market, I think there's some real bargains going to come at, at many businesses, opportunities to expand. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm quite bullish that post certainty of uh, of of the health scares that people will start looking out but the reality is we mustn't be naive you know we were naive thinking that the lockdown was going to be solved solved in three weeks uh, last year uh, this is going to take some time our economy is what it is to the extent that the government processes can come in play i think that would that would really help us um, you know if we can get some momentum into those infrastructure projects and some of the policies around some of these industries and uh, that we need to need to kickstart so we're uh, we're open for business. We're on the front foot. Uh, our, our value propositions from a digital perspective are pumping. We're market leading. We're uh, from a brand perspective, you know, the most valuable brand on the continent now. We're the best SME global SME bank of the year. So, so it's all good stuff for us as a franchise. And we we hope that the, the local economy uh, will will kickstart it, but then we can get more momentum to really to really see see if we can shine. Sure, uh, James Hurst here from Huge Group. We, we've got. We've got over 50,000 SME customers. Uh, it would be interesting yeah. to hear what your SME customer experience is over the last, over the last 12 months. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, we've got two, two types. I mean, some industries are really challenged. I mean, if you think about an SME in, in, the, in the tourism sector, that's quite a challenge, right? But equally, we've got so many uh, SMEs that are really making uh, and, and have got great, great growth prospects and, uh, and 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 we're supporting them. And fortunately, in our world, we've got very very uh, responsive data patterns that we follow. Uh, if you think about it, uh, the two coffee shops next to each other. One one has, uh, uh, has kept its doors closed, and the other one's opened sure. up. We can transactional banking spot activity and follow it with support for 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 that economic activity to grow. So so it's not the same for all, but uh, but we're. Uh, our, our commercial segment has actually uh, grown profits over the period, so so we uh, we we're bouncing back quite quite well. Oh, that's excellent because we've we've faced uh, we we've seen the same kind of circumstances, and and our SME customers, which are large in number, um, have been very very re- resilient. I mean, we've been very surprised um, at how resilient they, they've been. Yeah, yeah, we've got a fighting spirit. You know, to run a business is quite a. I mean, it's an unbelievably uh, inspirational story to you how these people and are fighting for their businesses, keeping doors open, making plans, um, and that's that's what ultimately our country needs. You know, people on the ground are making plans. Then, uh, then we've got hope. Yeah, connectivity, telephone calls, and banking. 
Last things to go from an, for an SME customer. I think we're in a good space. Absolutely. Appreciate that comment. So that was Jacques Celia, CEO of FNB, talking about the challenges and opportunities after a very difficult year. Coming up, we speak to Charles Boerter, my colleague in the Western Cape, about executive remuneration. Charles, you've been doing some digging on uh, executive pay. Can you just share with us some of the very interesting findings? Uh, these guys don't do too badly, do they? No, they're not in the poor house uh, yet. Um, so I haven't been, so I'm still in the process of doing a, a thorough uh, report. But uh, for interest, I looked at some of the banks today. And uh, because, as you would know, earlier I said that uh, the Reserve Bank said they're not allowed to pay cash bonuses. This was now last year. So I just uh, looked at some cash bonuses amounts. And you must remember the cash bonuses amounts these top executives earn are usually not the biggest parts of their earnings. So to give you one example, um, I guess Jacques Sillier uh, earned a cash bonus of 8.27 million rand uh, in 2019, which is about three times as much as the average person in South Africa earns. The average person makes about 22,500 rand per month, according to Stats SA. And this isn't the only remuneration they earn, is it? The cash bonus is just one component of a big package. You're right. So in that same year, Jock um, took home 22.25 million which is a little bit more than 86 times what the average African makes. So these guys do very well, um, but I suppose uh, they do have 80 to 100 hour work weeks. And, and, lots of stress. and how do they decide executive remuneration? Is it the size of the company, the market capitalization? When do we know that somebody's being paid a fair pay for a CEO? The issue you're raising here is is incredibly important because you're seeing, um, especially in the United States and and what's happening around the world, inequality is rising. So people want to know why are they paying people two, three hundred times in the states now and here by us? Why are they pe- paying people fifty times, eighty times normal people's salaries? And so our remuneration committees decide this is then very important. So one of the themes that comes through in in the bank's um, reports, and which I agree with, is that they one of the, the big things is they pay um, remuneration based on the return on capital that the bank makes. So ROE, for instance. So uh, ROE, for those who don't know, so your ROE in your bank account, if, if you've got a 100 rand and you put it in the bank and you get 5 rand back at the end of the year, your ROE is 5. So what does so ROE what is, stand for? Just uh, return on equity. Return right. on equity. So if you put your savings in the bank, you put your 100 rand in at the end of the year, you get it's 105, then that 5 rand, you know, that's return on equity, 5%. So there's, uh, in this case, in some of the bank's cases, they will argue that they reward um, people on what they can control. So levers they can pull, so cost levers or things like that, things they can control. They can't control the economy, so but they can have certain things they they can have certain things they can control and and try and improve profits like that and return on equity. 
So for more on Charles Boerter's digging around in executive executive pay, do go to biznews.com where his full story will be appearing fairly soon. In these uncertain times, many of us are feeling the financial pinch. The good news is that your assets don't need to be under lockdown. For honest on-site appraisals of all your jewelry, diamonds, fine watches, artworks, and Krugerrands, visit your trusted partner at Point Jewelry Exchange Seapoint and turn your assets into much-needed cash. Collateral loans are also offered with quick and easy payment options. With 20 years of service excellence, you can count on our great value always. Unlock your wealth. Visit pointjewels.co.za. Four wheels will get you from A to B. AGS Worldwide Movers will take you beyond. At AGS Worldwide Movers, our innovative vision has made us global leaders with our removal services spanning over five continents. We offer customized moving and secure storage services and manage the entire move from one central point of contact. To ensure a pleasant, stress-free move, simply choose the perfect partner. Visit agsmovers.com. AGS Worldwide Movers, because you deserve the best. South African pharmacists who operate under the pharma value chain of pharmacies this week joined the legal chorus to get approval for the use of ivermectin for the treatment of COVID-19 in South Africa. The group, which includes doctors, want to compel the South African Health Products Regulatory Authority to allow them to freely prescribe ivermectin. Now it's currently only available on a compassionate use program, which is seen as too restrictive. The matter is set to be heard in court later this month. Also this week, Oxford University is to test ivermectin as a potential COVID-19 treatment. Earlier this month, I spoke to Professor Eli Schwartz, an Israeli tropical disease expert who has undertaken a small-scale human trial on ivermectin. He says he has proof it can cure COVID-19 in as little as six days. Listen to my interview with Professor Schwartz. We decided to go for ivermectin first because as part of the Tropical Institute, we know well the drug and we know well the safety profile of the drug. And when the corona started and there were some uh, new data saying that, showing that in vitro, it's a very highly effective against the coronavirus, we decided to go for it. And you know, if just to remind you that at that time, most of the world we're running for the hydroxychloroquine as the savior of the world, and we decided to go for something else. So at that time, we decided to go for it, and my decision was to go for the early stage of the disease, to see whether it actually can act a bit like a vaccine. That means if you give it at the early stage, it doesn't matter if the patient is mild, ill, or even asymptomatic, but maybe by this you can shorten the let's call it viremic phase, the phase in which he shedding the virus outside out and contaminated the environment, that can be a great advantage because then it can break the transmission chain and it also may shorten the isolation period. So to find a drug that within maybe a few days of treatment, you can be free free of the disease, free of the viruses, it's really it's very valuable. So we went for this, the bottom line, is that actually it's really acting well and it's shortened the viral shedding period. And therefore, people actually we feel can be isolated if we are going to adopt it, can be isolated for shorter time. And therefore, we think that it really can also help to break the transmission chain. And I would say that our study is not a big one, 120, which half of it 
is placebo, half of it is ivermectin. It's not that big, but it's very encouraging results. And in fact, it shows that this drug has antiviral effect, anti-COVID-19 impact. And in this case, this is, not to forget, this is the first drug with anti-corona effect. All the other drugs that we still use in hospital, mainly among hospitalized patients, are not antiviral. It's mainly anti-inflammatory to reduce the uh, cytokine storm and therefore can help to manage the patient, but uh, it's not antiviral. So this is actually the first proven, seems to be the first proven anti-COVID-19 drug, and this is highly important because now you can go for other purpose and to use it. So our plan, for example, is to go to people at high risk. That means people uh, older than 50 with more some risk factors like, you know, obesity, hypertension, diabetes, etc. And to give to give the drug specifically to this group of population and to see whether we can prevent hospitalization. So again, to give it at the early stage of the disease, when they are still at home, and to see whether the admission rate will diminish if you compare it to placebo, whether less of these people will need vent, uh, artificial ventilations, and certainly will reduce uh, mortality. So this is one another aspect that we think should be uh, we should continue to work on the drug. And the other uh, way to use it is as a prophylaxis. And now when I say prophylaxis, it means if you have somebody who was verified to have the disease, he has a family around him, and you give it immediately to the whole family members and to see whether you really can reduce the number of uh, new infections. In this case, it's again, it can act in a way like a vaccine, and I think, therefore, the, this is the importance of the disease. Now, I know that around the world, in many places, the drug is given. However, without good evidence for it. So I think governments, especially in the Western world, when they have more budget to, to use for it, we should continue and do more properly done studies to show really the effectiveness of, uh, of the drug. What uh, is it about ivermectin that is antiviral? How did you I discover mean, uh, or think that that might work against a virus like coronavirus? So I'm not sure we know all the uh, effects of it, but ivermectin as an antiviral agent was found to, or we found to have antiviral activity many years ago, not uh, only against the COVID, but before RNA, different other RNA viruses, HIV, dengue, for example, and there is a specific proteins which is blocked within the cells and therefore prevent the entrance of the virus into the nucleus site. So that's the main part of it. Actually, in addition to antiviral activity, there are some studies showing that it has also anti-inflammatory effects. So therefore, even in severe patients, at the stage where the virus, it's not the main issue, but more is the cytokines and the inflammation which happen, ivermectin may have a role also. But again, I would start with the early stage of the disease because it may change deterioration to severe disease, may decrease mortality, 
and again may help to reduce isolation time. Now, people ask, uh, at least in Israel, that you know the vaccine campaign is so rapidly go over the country. Why do we need the drug if we have the vaccine? So I think there are a few answers for it. First, if you think worldwide, not only on Israel, I mean the time until all the entire world will get vaccine is going to have a few years. There are millions of people who are going to wait for a long time until they will get the vaccine. That's one thing. The other thing is still the vaccine is not registered for all the populations. We know, for example, kids do not cannot get it. And we are not sure when it will be approved for the children. Don't forget that schools, children going to go back at school, and if they are not vaccinated, it's kind of a pool of the virus which can spread all over. And there are some people outside, uh, even if vaccine is available, that they cannot get the vaccine. So you have a focus of population, subpopulation, who are continue to share the virus and to, inf- and to infect each other. And therefore, to have a, a drug, and for example, to use this drug in schools, whenever you have a, one case in a classroom and you give it and you prevent the spread of the disease, it's highly, highly important. And not to forget, especially if we are talking to South Africa, there we have variants like the South African variants, which we ask, there is a suspicion that maybe the vaccine will not cover it properly. And this is the situation now. Nobody knows what's going to be in the next future. Do we have new mutations with more variability and maybe less effect, the vaccine will be less effective? So I think to have an antiviral agent is highly, highly important in so severe disease. We hope we will not need it in the future, but so far, I think is we urgently need and to continue to work on this ivermectin in the other wings, let's say, and the other, <laughs> other ways that I mentioned, uh, we should continue and do this uh, research. That's all we've got time for on today's show. Thanks for joining me, Jackie Cameron, and the rest of the Biz News team here on the Biz News Power Hour. We'll be back at the same time tomorrow on Fine Music Radio. You can also catch up on the Business Power Hour Spotify channel. Until next time. You've been listening to the Power Hour brought to you by the team at Business.